0: following message is from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, go to TrinityGraceEssay.org. Uh, I, maybe like some of you, grew up in a very traditional church. It was the church where the pastors wore robes, and we had a big choir and a pipe organ. And so in that kind of church where I grew up, Easter was the time everybody put on their best. And as a kid, that just meant it was the time you wore the one or two things that you never wore for the rest of the year. And everybody, all the adults, you know, would come and go, oh, you're so cute. You know, look how great you look. And it's the time where little kids would look the most like adults, right? You know this, it's super cute. When a three-year-old boy walks in and he's wearing a tie and a jacket, and you're like, you look so grown up, it's awesome. We love that on Easter, we think it's really cute when kids dress like grown ups. Now, there was a time uh, in the history of our country and of Western civilization where actually kids dress like grown ups all the time. See, we're used to kids being kids for the most part. We're used to kids being able to run around with their shoes off or with ratty t shirts. We're used to kids kind of being able to live their lives with a lot of freedom. But it used to not be that way. It used to be that children, were really expected to act like adults all the time. And so their parents would dress them like adults all the time. They would dress, literally the boys and the girls would wear corsets just to keep them in line. And they would wear ties and they would wear hats and they were all buttoned up and sharp because they were supposed to be adults. Well, there was this guy uh, in the 19th century, a philosopher, French philosopher, and don't, don't let me lose you, okay? Because I said French philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a guy who's really given a lot of credit for even the French Revolution and a lot of what he thought. But he also came up with this idea that, you know, we're too restrictive on children. Children actually need to have childhood. They need to have lives where they're not supposed to act like adults all the time. And so Rousseau is kind of like the champion for children in many ways. He's the guy that started what we know now as kind of what a childlike life is. But here's the rub, is that Rousseau was not a very good father to his own children. In fact, after his wife died, he decided he didn't really have time to be a father, and so he just dropped them off in an orphanage one day. What do you do with that? What do you do with a guy who is the champion of childhood who is not so much a champion of his own children? Or how about a more recent example? Uh, Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby is a guy that everybody knows and probably until a couple last year, everybody thought was pretty fabulous. I listened to uh, an interview on the radio not too long ago. They were talking about Bill Cosby and it was two, two people in the interview talking and then they played a clip from Cosby's attorney. This is right around the time of his trial. And the attorney was saying, you know, Bill Cosby has been a champion of civil rights for years and years. And Bill Cosby has been a leader in educating men and boys for years and years and years. And Bill Cosby has entertained countless millions of people around the world. And I came back to the interviewers and you you could hear the struggle in their voice as one of them said, That's actually right, isn't it? Like Bill Cosby did actually do a lot of good in education. Bill Cosby did actually do a lot of good in the civil rights movement. Bill Cosby is beloved by millions. And Bill Cosby is now a convicted sex offender. And you could hear the struggle in the voices of these interviewers. When one guy said, now we have to keep both of these things in our minds. Now we got to hold both of this. Here's Bill Cosby, the guy that everybody loved and laughed at. Here's Bill Cosby, the really horrible guy. What do I do with that? We can look around the world and have that question in a lot of ways. And of course, we can look at ourselves and have that same question. What do we do when we see some really great things in our lives and some really horrible things? I have, as a pastor, literally had to go do marriage counseling for a couple after having a a fight with my wife. I have literally had to preach a sermon on patience like 10 minutes after losing my patience with my children. That kind of conflict just lives in us as human beings, doesn't it? How do we live with that? How do we deal with who we are? when we look honestly at ourselves and we see sometimes some really great things. And then we look honestly at ourselves and we see sometimes some really horrible things. How do we deal with it with our spouses, with our children, with our neighbors, with our leaders, with our pastors? Well, Paul's answer in this passage is that the way that we deal with that is that we remember our story. That's his answer for us the way that we can deal with seeing the conflict in our lives is that we remember the story that we have been brought into. We remember the story of what Jesus has done in making outsiders insiders. We remember the story of what Jesus has done in repairing our relationship with him and with one another. We remember the story of Jesus actually giving us the value that drives all that we do. We're gonna look this morning at the story that Paul lays out for our lives personally, what that story means for us. And then we're actually gonna zoom out at the end and kind of see even the big picture story that overlays on top of that. So let's talk first about our lives personally. What does this story mean? Well, the first part of this story is that Paul says that our story includes a redeemed identity, a redeemed identity. Listen to these words again as he starts this passage out. See, what Paul says is that because of what Jesus has done, we who were outsiders have been made insiders. We've been brought near. Now, Paul says Gentiles, he talks to Gentiles. If you're new to Christianity, you may not know what that word means. That's fine. Gentiles is just the word in the Bible that means not Jewish. And Paul is talking to a young church. He's a church planter. He's talking to a young church, just like this church. And it's a church filled mostly with Gentile converts meaning people who have come to believe in Christ who did not grow up Jewish. Now, for most of their life, though, they had been told that being not Jewish was an impediment to coming to God. And you know what? That's actually true. Throughout the whole Old Testament, God deals with his people, and he calls them to not only represent him in the world, to show his glory, to show the world who he is, but to bring others in because becoming a part of God's people is actually how you get to know who God is. But these Gentiles were outside of that. And Paul tells them that the most remarkable thing has happened to them, is that those who were cut off from all the promises, those who were cut off from actually knowing God, and he speaks some really pointed things, right? Here he says that you had no hope, that you were strangers to the covenants, that you were far off, right? So they did not know God, they couldn't, but Jesus has actually brought them in. For instance, if you are a Christian, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, what Paul says about these Gentile converts in the first century is true of you too, is that your story is their story, is that you were far off, you and I were outside and we've been brought in. That is the identity that we've been given. Outsiders have been made insiders. People who were wandering have been made citizens. Those who had no hope and who were apart from God have been given hope. And let me say, this may be the most surprising piece for some of us, is that that is the same story, even if you have a really boring conversion story. You know what I mean by this, right? Some of you who, uh, that time where everybody in college gathered around and said, let's, let's talk about our testimonies. How did you come to know Jesus? And they come to you and you said, well, I mean, I was raised in the church and you know, like I didn't really, I mean, I've kind of always known who Jesus is and always trusted in him. And so, sorry. And we feel this like sense of shame because we've grown up knowing who Jesus is. Now, listen, let's be really clear. If you're a parent, you want your children to have a really boring conversion story. We we employ, you know, a, a person in our church who directs our children's ministry and our youth ministry. And the reason is we want all of our conversion stories to be boring. We want our children to grow up knowing who Jesus is. But here's the truth. Even if your conversion story is, you know what? It feels like I've just always kind of known that Jesus loves me. I feel like I've always understood that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of his grace. And I've always wanted to live my life out of that. First of all, hallelujah, if that's your story. Second of all, that story is the most miraculous story that's ever been told. Because that super boring sounding story to you is actually exactly the story that Paul talks about here even if that is your story, there was a time that you were without hope. There was a time that you were outside. There was a time that you did not know God and he has given you all of those things. Now you may not remember that time. It may not have come at one kind of bang moment. It may have come over time. But the truth is that miraculous story of a renewed identity, of a total change in your heart of the Holy Spirit chasing you down and making you something and someone that you never were before, that's your story. Even if your conversion story sounds really boring to you, that miraculous story is yours. Here's a second piece of our story. Is that not only do we have a renewed or redeemed identity, we also have been given renewed and redeemed relationships. Listen as Paul goes on here in, uh, in verse 14. People came from a lot of different places, particularly if you were a Gentile and you were there in church with a Jew. There was hostility. There was hostility oftentimes between classes. There was hostility between races. There was hostility between different socioeconomic groups and different social groups. There was hostility between men and women. There has, since Genesis chapter three, the fall, been hostility between people. But Here's the beautiful truth of the gospel is that there is a vertical element and a horizontal element. We just talked about that renewed identity. That's the vertical, right? Is that God makes us right with himself. Is that because of what Jesus has done on the cross and in his resurrection, he makes us right with him. So we become one, united with Christ so that we're right with God. That is a perfected and renewed vertical identity, vertical relationship. But there's a horizontal aspect to it too is that because of the gospel, we're supposed to be made right with one another. We're supposed to be made right with each other, even with people who are really different than we are. I have this conversation oftentimes as a pastor, as a church planter, I will sit down with somebody who may be new to the church or new to Christianity and they'll say, um, they'll say okay, uh, Presbyterian, right? Um, okay, Pres- I get that, like, so that church on whatever street, like that, that's Presbyterian church right? too, right? Same, same thing? And I'll have to say, uh, actually not the same thing. Um, they're in a different you know, denomination than we are. And they'll go, oh, there's, there's two Presbyterian denominations. And then I'll get really sheepish and I'll be like, actually, there's a whole lot more than two. And it's kind of this really shameful time where I have to sit down with people and say, you know what, the church is actually super broken apart and divided and it's really ugly in a lot of ways. And you know, it's that truth That actually keeps people oftentimes away from Jesus. They look at us as Christians, they look at the church and they say, Man, if you guys can't even get along with each other, what hope is there for the world? We've written songs about this as people. John Lennon, his most famous song, Imagine, imagines a world of peace and beauty and harmony and people living together. And guess what is conspicuously absent in that song? It's religion. Imagine no religion, and that's the key to people getting along. The Apostle Paul here says it's actually just the opposite. It's because of what Jesus has done for us. It is because of the truth of the gospel that we actually are united to one another. Is that the pathway toward peace and unity and relationship is actually the gospel, the presence of the gospel not the absence of it. What he means is that those people in those other churches, those other people, if they claim the name of Christ, they are your brothers. They are your sisters. The Methodist church down the street, the Baptist church down the street, the non-denominational church down the street. If we are proclaiming the name of Christ together, and later in the service, we'll read through the Apostles' Creed, this wonderful statement of what it means to know Jesus, If we proclaim those things together, then we are united together. There is relationship that needs to be together and is repaired. One little way that we try to do this in our church is is that we actually pray for other churches during our service. And again, the reason is not because like we are super holy. The reason is because we're totally forgetful and we're really selfish people. And if we don't pray for them, we will start to believe that we're the only ones around we will start to believe that we are the best and the most perfect example of church that the world has ever seen. So because our hearts need it, we pray for others. Now that may be what you need to hear for Christians, other Christians in the city. It may be what you need to hear for the people who are sitting next to you in a chair beside you. Maybe it's just a family that's really different than you are. Maybe it's a family that you have a hard time getting to know or another person. Maybe it's the person that you sleep in the same bed with, and there is difficulty. There is enmity. Friends, the truth of the gospel is not only that we have been made right with God, but that we can be made right with one another. That is a redeemed relationship that is part of our story. All right, here's a third piece of our story, and it's redeemed value. Listen to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul says that even these Gentile believers who have come to know Jesus are made citizens. They are given real and lasting value. You could summarize all of this by just saying, you belong. Now, think of it again. If you're a Gentile convert in the first century, you have been told probably over and over you don't belong here. You don't have worth and value because of your heritage. Some of you, if, if the demographers are right, in a, in a room this size, there's a good number of you that have heard that voice also in your lives. It could have been from someone else. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a boss or probably more likely than anything else, it's the voice in your own head that says over and over, I'm not enough. There is something deeply wrong about me. And even though I know that Jesus has come to save me, there is still something that I don't believe about the value that I have because of that. That's called shame. This belief that there's, that there's some, for some reason, I'm not enough. And a lot of us carry around shame with us all the time, like a suitcase, We're just dragging it behind us all the time. And that voice is always just blaring in the back of our heads. If that's you, you need to hear this most especially this morning. Jesus says that you belong. If he has changed your heart, if you belong to Christ, then you belong to his body. If you belong to Christ because of what he has done for you, if that's your confession, then you are his and he will never let you go. And it doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic background you have. It doesn't matter what you did last night. You belong to Jesus. He has made you valuable. I heard a story the other day about a, a man named uh, Francois Clemens. And yes, that's the second French name I've said during the sermon. It doesn't normally happen. Francois Clemens, you may actually know as uh, Officer Clemens. If you grew up with Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, Officer Clemens was the friendly neighborhood policeman that would visit Mr. Rogers all the time. He was on the show, I think, for 16 years in a row. Well, Francois Clemens was actually the first uh, recurring African-American character on a children's television show ever. So before this, children had never really consistently seen a black man on TV. And when he was asked to do this, it was actually really hard for him because Francois Clemens grew up uh, in a neighborhood in which the police and a police uniform was, was not, it was not a happy thing. That was not good association for him. A policeman was the person who was kind of the carrier of white power and of oppression. The police were the people who would sick the dogs on you. And so it was difficult actually for him to put on that uniform all of the time. But it was Fred Rogers who by the way was an ordained Presbyterian minister who pushed this harder and harder and harder all the time. He's the one who welcomed him in. And there's this really beautiful story of this one time on the set of Mr. Rogers where it's a hot day and, uh, and, and Fred Rogers is there and he's trying to kind of cool off and he pulls up a little baby pool and he fills the baby pool full of water and he sits beside it and he takes off his shoes and his socks and he sticks his feet into the baby pool and he says, you know, oh, doesn't that feel so good to cool your feet off? And then he calls over Officer Clemens and he says, why don't you come and sit with me here? And he calls Francois to come and sit down and take off his socks and take off his shoes and put his feet in the water with him. And as they were interviewing uh, Francois Clemens afterwards, he said it was uh, was a life-changing event for him because Fred Rogers was not only calling him over, this is 1969, by the way, he's not only calling him over to come and expose his brown skin on TV in front of everyone, but to... To share the same water with him, and then afterwards, uh, in a very Jesus-like move, uh, Fred takes a towel and dries his feet off. And if you uh, if you grew up with Mister Rogers like I did, you know like he would end every uh, every episode by saying um, something like this: "You know, you are special just because of who you are, and I like you just how you are. You are special because of who you are, and I like you just how you are." And Francois Clemens says he remembers this one show where as Fred was, was ending the show, he stared directly at him and said, you are special because of who you are and I like you just how you are. And Francois came up to, to Fred afterwards. He said, were you talking to me that time? And, uh, and Fred Rogers said, Francois, I've been talking to you for years. It's just the first time you've heard it. Maybe this needs to be the first time you hear that this morning, that Jesus has given you value because of what he has done for you, that Jesus has changed your identity, that he's brought you into his people, and that he has given you real and lasting value. Now, I told you we were going to kind of zoom out uh, and, and look at a bigger picture as well, because there's another story that's going on also not only the story that's personal for us, if we belong to Christ, but really the story of the world. It's kind of like, you know, if you have a a, tracing paper or transparency and you lay one thing over another and it's got a different picture and the the broader picture becomes clearer and clearer the more that you lay those layers over. Well, this is the layer that we get to lay over that is about our worldview, how we think about the world. And this layer or this kind of paradigm, we can uh, summarize in three words, creation, fall, redemption. And creation, fall, and redemption is the story that makes sense of the world. It's actually the story of the world and of the Bible. If you open up the Bible, you'll see that in the beginning, God created all things good, that he created them for his glory, that he created them to reflect his glory in the world. And that's the way it was supposed to be. And then you see just a couple of chapters later that mankind, because we are sinful and rebellious, brings all of the world into a state of brokenness. That's fall. But then God, even in Genesis chapter three, sets on this mission to redeem, to renew, to forgive, to bring back what was lost, to make all things new. That's the story of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption. Now, maybe you've noticed that's actually kind of the story of your worship service too. That's the pattern of your worship service. You start by proclaiming the goodness of God, who he is and, uh, and, and what he has done. His holiness is what we said this morning. And then we turn our attention to the brokenness of our hearts. We're honest about the fall. We're honest about the fall as as it has gripped even our own hearts personally. And then we get to celebrate his redemption. We get to hear the good news of grace, and we get to come and be renewed by his word and his table. This is also the story, though, that makes sense of the world for us, where we can put on these glasses and start to see the world in a way that keeps us from the binary tensions that we oftentimes see. For instance, how do we think about work? Is work something that is really great for me to do, that I get to pour myself into, that makes me who I am, in fact, that identifies me? We often ask somebody that we've just met, what do you do? What we're saying is, what do you work at that identifies you? Is that what work is? or is work something that really is just pretty terrible? It's kind of a necessary evil that lets me feed my family, lets me do the things that I really want to do in life, but really, I'd love to get rid of it at some point. Is work one of those two things? Well, let's apply our paradigm here, creation, fall, redemption. When we open up the Bible, we actually see that work was created good, that Adam and Eve are called to work the garden, that they're called to cultivate it, that they're called to actually do something that is glorifying to God and good for them. So work was created good. But then we also see that our work is broken, that we are prone oftentimes to find our identity in our work, that we are prone either to laziness or to overwork and workaholism, right? Our hearts are broken. And so the way that we oftentimes engage work can end up being uh, really bad, But work is also something that is under the redemption of Jesus Christ. And as his people, we are called to bring a redeemed understanding to how we work so that we actually can work uh, uh, in a way that's glorifying to God, so that we can work in a way that's a part of our worship, so that we can work in a way that is part of what it means to follow Jesus. Or how about politics? Is politics the good thing for society that allows people to gather together and to govern themselves and to figure out how they're going to live their lives? Or is politics the tool for the haves against the have-nots? Is politics the tool for those who have power so that they can abuse those who don't have power? Well, let's put our paradigm in it. It's good for people actually to get together. We are built as relational people. The God that we worship is relational himself. He's called us into relationship. And so it's good for us to get together and figure out how, does, how are we gonna make this thing called culture work? But it's also broken by sin. And so our hearts are gonna be oftentimes, uh, they're gonna be bent toward hubris and pride and selfishness and abuse of power. And we're, or, or cynicism, maybe it is, to say, you know what? I'm, I'm done with all of this. But politics is also under the sphere now of redemption. Jesus is renewing all things, that includes politics. And as Christians, we get to now engage the political sphere as those who seek to be a part of that redemption, to see the redemption of all things take place, even in the way that we vote and the way that we govern and the way that we get together as a society. And of course, now, hopefully you've made this jump already, maybe in your minds, this is the way that we understand people too. When we look at public figures, we look at them not as binary individuals of either bad or good, We get to look at them as people who are created in the image of God, given value and honor and dignity because they were created in the image of God and broken by sin, deeply prone to selfishness, but also able to be redeemed by Christ. When we look at our spouses, that's what we see. When we look at our neighbors, that's what we see. When we look at a homeless man that we meet on the side of the road, that's what we see. Someone who is dignified because he was made in the image of God, who is broken by sin, his own and the sin of others, but who is redeemable. And he may be even being redeemed by Jesus Christ. That's how we understand the world around us. That's how we understand the people around us. And it's how we understand our own hearts. See, when I am struggling deeply with my identity, when I am oftentimes seeking to find that identity in something I do, in a way that I perform, in the way that I look. And I got news for you, for pastors, this is, right now is the time that I'm the most tempted <laughs> because we seek to find our identity oftentimes in preaching or in leading or in how many people come to church or whatever it is, insert whatever that blank is in your life. Well, I've got to preach this story to myself. I'm made in God's image. He has created me to know him and to be united to him. I'm broken by sin. I'm selfish. I'm prideful. I'm arrogant. I'm oftentimes going to find myself drawn to those things. But Jesus has given me a new identity. He has given me a redeemed identity. I belong to him. That's the story I get to preach to myself. Or what if I'm struggling in a relationship? Maybe it's my neighbor. Maybe it's my spouse. Maybe it's my child. Maybe it's, you know, another Christian that I think that I'm so much better than. What's the story I need to tell myself? I and they are made in God's image. This person is somebody who is made in the image of God who is crowned with glory and honor because of that. And we are both broken by sin. And because of that, I want all me all the time. And the only way out of wanting all me all the time is to know that Jesus has given all of himself all the time for me. And so I ask him, Lord, will you create in me even a little bit of that so that I might be renewed in my relationship with this person? Or what if I'm struggling with my value? If I'm carrying around that suitcase of shame, what do I need to preach to myself? Well, I need to preach that same thing. Lord, you have created me in your image. You've called that good. You have crowned me with glory and honor. You have said that I am valuable and worthy because of that. And you know what? I'm broken by sin. And it is my tendency to always think that there is something lacking and to think that I need to make it up by what I do or by how I look or by what I weigh or by what I achieve or whatever that is, that that's the way that I'm going to cover my shame. And then I need to look and say, Jesus, you have actually done that for me. You have carried my shame and my guilt. You have paid for it once and for all. It is nailed to your cross and you have risen to new life on my behalf. Let me just close with this question. What would our lives be like? What would this church be like if we remembered that story more fully? If that story of who we are and what Jesus has done for us was present in all of our thoughts, was present in our conversations, was present around our family dinner tables, what would this church look like? What would San Antonio look like? It's a great thing for us to consider today and to ask that the Lord would do exactly what he has promised to do, to come and finish that story for us and make us a part of it. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we just want to thank you for bringing us in to that glorious story that you have initiated, that you are working right now that you have promised to complete. Father, we know that it's not finished yet, but we do have the promise that it will be. And so, Lord, even as we sit in that time between, as we still have to struggle with ourselves and with those around us, as we still have to see both the beauty and the glory and the real deep ugliness of who we are and what our world is around us, Lord, we do have hope. We have hope because this story is true and it is real. You have done something that we cannot do on our own. So we just want to ask that we would believe it, that we would believe it more fully. Will you enable our hearts to do that today? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.